Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, February 20th. On today's show, we'll talk about the charges dropped last Friday by special counsel Robert Mueller, who's been investigating the Russian interference in the 2016 election. He indicted 13 Russian nationals and three Russian companies. His indictment gave us the fullest picture yet of how Russian agents allegedly organized and carried out their political trolling operation. Later, we'll be joined by Jonathan Albright, the director of research at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. He's been investigating the posts and accounts made by Russian agents on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other platforms, and has unearthed all kinds of important details about how this disinformation campaign played out. And we'll end, as usual, with Don't Close My Tabs, our picks for the best on the web this week. Okay, Will, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. Friday was a crazy news day with the Mueller indictment. I think we're still sifting through it and making sense of it. What about you? Uh, same, you know, still making sense of it and, and, and other bits of news that have dropped in relation to it. It was certainly a bombshell and a Friday news dump. <laughs> it was. And so the indictment, which we alluded to at the top of the show, named 13 Russian nationals, three Russian companies. It was actually a fascinating read from start to finish. It just gave sort of the whole playbook, at least what we know about it, in terms of what these Russian trolls and agents were doing exactly and how they did it. And it focused on one organization in particular called the Internet Research Agency. April, tell us a little bit about what the Internet Research Agency is. Sure. It is an organization that is you know, not run directly by the Kremlin, but is uh, instead run by a fellow that uh, owns a catering company that's closely linked to the Kremlin. I love it that there's a catering company involved in this. It's very very Sopranos. It's very, yeah, very shady. It's like, what is a catering company doing involved with this? But they uh, have been underwriting uh, much of the work of the Internet Research Agency, which is based in St. Petersburg in a nondescript office building, as it has been since about 2013. Now, we know that... um, The organization has been targeting the 2016 presidential election since 2014. So they've really been thinking about this, you know, two years before we all went to vote. Um, But, uh, you know, as time went on, according to the indictment since 2014, the agency, you know, had hundreds of employees going in and out. There were more than 100 real Americans, including the people who were associated with the Trump campaign, who had been contacted through fake accounts made by Russian trolls at the IRA. That's the Internet Research Agency uh, to recruit and carry out their requests. Um, And basically what uh, these, you know, trolls were doing were um, spending all day. And when I say trolls, I mean employees at the agency, you know, spending all day writing posts, cultivating fake online personas, you know, maybe running an astrology blog, uh, as as I read in one example, or or, or a cooking blog. Um, You know, uh, there was a whole section just on comments. So boostering comments on posts. Some of the work of the Internet Research Agency was on Russian politics and what was happening inside the country. Of course, a large division was focused on the United States, as we know. Um, But they were creating memes. They were uh, creating viral accounts, uh, you know, fake petitions and campaigns and just doing a lot of writing, it seems like. I mean, this was really a social media content or is rather a social media content factory across, you know, all kinds of platforms, Facebook, Twitter, 
YouTube, Instagram. This indictment just brought a lot of details uh, to light or brought a lot of details together that we had kind of heard from disparate reportings all into one place. And after it was dropped, to many people's surprise, an executive from Facebook had some words to share. You know, and I'm curious if you could kind of help shed light on on what happened with that, because it was kind of hard to follow with with everything that was going on. You know, and I should note that Facebook was uh, named in the indictment over 30 times as one of the main targets of the Internet Research Agency's work. Yeah, the word Facebook was peppered throughout the indictment. And for Facebook, that was taken as a good thing. They're trying to show that they are being transparent, that they are fully cooperating. They're turning over everything they have on the ads that were purchased by these Russian agents in the name of trying to both figure out what happened and make sure it doesn't happen again. But they kind of stepped in it shortly afterwards. Uh, So Friday evening on Twitter, Rob Goldman, who is vice president of ads at Facebook, got on Twitter, and Facebook has been allowing its executives to roam a little bit on Twitter and to tweet apparently without official approval from their communications department or from Mark Zuckerberg or anybody else. And Goldman went on there and said, we're very excited to see the Mueller indictment. Uh, You know, he was trying to highlight Facebook's cooperation. And then he said some things that seemed a little defensive and some people thought were also inaccurate or misleading. He said, Most of the coverage of Russian meddling involves their attempt to affect the outcome of the 2016 U.S. election, but I have seen all of the Russian ads, and I can say very definitively that swaying the election was not the main goal. This is from a string of tweets that he did on that Friday. And surprise, our president, Donald Trump, found one of these tweets, or one of his staff members did, and he retweeted it approvingly saying, look, this just proves that even Facebook uh, knows that the fake news media is trying to mislead you, and this really wasn't about getting me elected. So Trump took this and twisted it to his own purposes. And uh, Facebook got a lot of blowback, as you might expect. Rob Goldman has apparently apologized internally, this according to a report from Nick Thompson in Wired. And it just raises the question of, you know, after all this, is Facebook's still trying to downplay the role that it played here. It kind of undercuts the message that Facebook was trying to send, which is we're really an open book and we're trying to help as much as we can. And, you know, it seems like Facebook's been trying to kind of downplay this from the beginning, right? I mean, you know, they at first they just you know, said it was a very small amount of ads. And, you know, they they said that, you know, only 10 million people uh, intersected with with this or interacted with this in some way, you know, and then those numbers have just continued to inflate. Yeah. And I think that that this continued a trend of that. And I think it is reflective of how a lot of executives at Facebook think about this. I mean, I think they feel that they've been unfairly blamed or that their role in all of this has been exaggerated. But by focusing on just the ads, they can spout numbers that don't really convey the full magnitude of the problem in terms of the organic reach that these posts were getting. And in terms of the full scope of operations here, it also just seemed to contradict the the clear message of the indictment, which is that, in fact, at least least some point, the goal really was to elect Donald Trump. And that was really striking to me that, you know, a Facebook executive would go on to Twitter, you know, soon after the indictment was dropped and kind of counteract or contradict, you know, what the investigation has belabored so hard to prove and says so explicitly that this was a big deal. Um, You know, it clearly shows that there is just 
you know, some hardline thinking at Facebook that they are just really, you know, dead set at at downplaying this, um, or at least they just weren't thoughtful about how they would respond to this right off the bat. I mean, in his in his defense, he, he did he did make a couple of points that I sure. thought were valid. One of which was that a lot of the operations have continued beyond the election. You know, actually, the majority of Russian ad spend has come after the 2016 election happened. And the other point I thought was worth at least considering was, it doesn't seem like it started out as an attempt to elect Donald Trump. I mean, it started out as an attempt to weaken Hillary Clinton or to sow discord in the system. But I do think he still downplayed the fact that at least at some point, it really was about electing Trump. Well, it was about, even if it was to downplay Clinton, it was about the election. And I also want to counteract, I think one thing that, that uh, you know, this executive brought to light, which which is kind of a basic on truth is that democracy happens at these flashpoint moments of an election. And that's just not the way democracy works. Democracy flows. It, it's, it's you know, we, we change our minds about how we're going to vote or interact with our political system as we get new information, you know, on an ongoing daily basis. And to treat the 2016 election like it was just some event that's not going to lead into midterms, that's not going to lead into how people vote into the future, um, I think is really a disservice to the fluidity and the way our, uh, of our democracy and, and the way it functions. That said, we're going to be talking a lot more about this with somebody who's studied it extensively. When we come back, our interview with Jonathan Albright, the research director at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Our guest today is Jonathan Albright. He's the research director at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism and an award-winning data journalist. Before that, he was an assistant professor of communications at Elon University. Dr. Albright's work focuses on mapping the news ecosystem in the social media era. Lately, he's been busy tracking trolls and tracing the spread of misinformation and propaganda online. Welcome to If Then, Dr. Albright. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. No doubt you read the Mueller indictment that came out on Friday. Did anything in there surprise you? You've obviously been working on tracking a lot of the troll and bot and fake news activity that the indictment refers to. But was there anything that that was unexpected or that changed the way you think about this? Well, I think that it was something, you know, the document itself was was quite detailed. But I think that, you know, operationally, it really set out how these uh, fake identities actually existed beyond just social media or beyond um, what we would consider Twitter profiles. And, you know, this, you know, I, it was, it was interesting to read that these um, identities have, you know, these go all the way through to bank accounts. They go through to PayPal. 
accounts. So this this was a full fledged um, end to end kind of financial identity all the way through to a social media persona. So I thought that was that was an interesting part of the um, of the of the reading of the indictment. A second thing was um, just you know I think that a lot of people have been not shocked, but they were they were surprised to see just the number of mentions um, of Facebook. I think it was forty one times if you include. Instagram. So that was, a, that was, you know, that's, that's a very high number. And then, you know, I guess the the third thing would be in the indictment was just, you know, there, there was an absence of other services. So it was very much focused uh, on Twitter, Facebook, and, and Instagram. So I, w- I was surprised to see that, you know, at least at this point, I'm, there's going to be, you know, surely more things that are going to come out. But at this point, it's, you know, I, the, I guess the enforceable things or the things that they can prosecute on are, are, mostly limited to ads, although there were all sorts of other, there was a lot of organic reach that was much, much larger than the ads. But I think that, you know, from a litigation perspective, they had to focus on on a few things and and kind of start with that. One of your research points said that, you know, with just a handful of the Facebook accounts that Russian operatives created, something like over 300 million people were reached. That's far over the 126 million that Facebook testified to Congress. I'm curious if you can kind of help us make sense of really how many people could have been touched by this and and really what that research was. I was essentially using their definitions, right? So I was using the definitions, uh, the, the initial metric that I had used um, and that they had that CrowdTangle, which is owned by Facebook, had used for quite some time was was a it was a number called total shared to or total people shared to. So I actually was using their metrics to define uh, how many people this reached. What I was trying to I guess get at or dig at on that particular uh, research was just the fact that the 10 million number I think it was it was about 10 million that was getting thrown around for quite a while about how many people these this reached um, was just completely. I mean, it wasn't even in the ballpark of of what, you know, when you include the organic uh, portion of this, like what that actually entailed. So the 340 million number um, would not, in some cases, have included duplicates. So so maybe, you know, a, like the same account looking at um, a series of posts. So in my opinion, that actually is even more concerning because a lot of the intent of the ads were really, so they were less about really advertising and they were more about targeting, right? So they were about creating a relationship with these followers. And then from that point on, once people followed these pages and once people liked these pages, uh, the likelihood of posts from those um, fake accounts, like showing up higher in their newsfeed, right? So, so there's, there's kind of, there's a, there's a relationship that was created, which is actually listed or described in, uh, one of Facebook's responses, I think it was to the Judicial Committee. So, you know, these six accounts that I was able to pull data on, um, it was the Being Patriotic, Blacktivist, uh, LGBT United, Muslims United, and Heart of Texas. At the time of when they shut these down, so they had about 1.6 million followers total. So the the fake Blacktivist account actually had more followers on Facebook than the real verified Black Lives Matter account does right now. And to be clear, these are these troll pages or these pages that were set up by Russian operatives on Facebook, uh, posing as activists for these various causes. Yeah, these. I'm so when I guess I'm talking about these six, um, going back to these six original Facebook profiles. So these are just the Facebook profiles, and they're just IRA, um, the Internet Research Agency profiles. Six of four hundred and seventy. 
One thing I'm curious about is your kind of methodology with all of this. How were you able to find that 340 million people somehow saw or interacted with these six accounts? You know, my understanding was that Facebook went through great pains to delete them. This is interesting because when I I have a bunch of other accounts that I would consider equally suspicious. So and I had those back in October. I've had those for, you know, for months, you know, all the way stretching back to 2016 when I started to look at this. But what what was happening is is that people were trying to run accounts through Facebook or through uh, different contacts at Facebook to get some of these verified to see if they would confirm that they were part of the IRA troll operation. So and and I just wasn't getting anything back. I mean, no one was kind of getting answers on on these. They wouldn't confirm, they wouldn't disconfirm. You know, it was taking days to even get a response on, you know, on accounts that you would kind of send over. Uh, so what I did was I actually fell back to those six accounts um, and I went into CrowdTangle, which is actually, it's a separate cache uh, than Facebook, which there's two explanations for why that uh, the content was actually still in there and all the metrics. So one one explanation, you know, they simply forgot to, to go back into their other um, tool and basically wipe that. Or people have kind of claimed that there could have been some type of process put into motion by um, Mueller's team that could have kind of frozen some things in time or maybe even spawned Facebook to not to kind of not cross that line to delete, you know, potential evidence. We have a clip I want to play from Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. This was at the press conference on Friday where he announced the indictments. Now, there is no allegation in this indictment that any American was a knowing participant in this illegal activity. There is no allegation in the indictment that the charge conduct altered the outcome of the 2016 election. So you heard Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein there say that there was no indication it affected the outcome of the 2016 election. Obviously, that's something that people have debated a lot. We may never know for sure. But you've been up close and personal with a lot of the content that was being shared. You know more about it than just about anybody. What did you make of that claim from the Deputy Attorney General? I I mean, I think that he's correct in in some ways, because um, when you look at these, uh, when you look at a lot of the content, much of it is not so much even pro-Trump as much as it is, you know, anti, anti-Hillary. So, you know, there was probably an expectation of, of Hillary to win the election. And, uh, you know, they wanted to make it as, as difficult as possible and kind of, and, and, you know, when she did take over, you know, they wanted to kind of create enough trouble as, as, you know, as, as possible. So they targeted specific groups, they created outrage. Um, there were wedge issues that were kind of splitting certain demographics. Uh, so it was a really interesting and very multifaceted operation that didn't necessarily, you know, it helped Trump, I guess, indirectly, but, it, but I don't, yeah, I, I agree that it wasn't something that was necessarily completely focused on, on kind of toppling, you know, Trump and pushing him into the white house. I think this was more of an indirect, um, operation to stir social problems and inequalities and and kind of spawn outrage from certain groups. Now, one thing that you've obviously been watching for some time is just how information moves on social media and, and, you know, what people do with it when they interact with it. What the indictment and all of the questions around uh, how, you know, Russian agents use social media brings up is how effective is online advertising or creating a Facebook page with posts? I mean, from an advertising perspective, you would think Facebook would want to argue that it's actually quite effective. But, you know, here we are in a position where they might be arguing 
and they have been arguing that this really isn't such a big deal and it's been a shallow uh, effect on on the overall big picture of things. I'm curious uh, in, in how you've looked at advertising over the years, online advertising and, and, and the way things flow on social media in particular. How does how does this square? You know, can we say that this was effective? Absolutely. There's no question this was effective. So I guess when it's put into kind of relative terms is when it becomes something that's more subjective that you can argue, well, it was just something that was part of a bigger operation or these things already existed or these these currents had already been established, you know, in terms of the far right libertarian nationalism, you know, anti-immigration. But, you know, in essence, it really was just extremely well executed and kind of perfectly timed integrated marketing campaign, really. So, and it was really something that was directed not at necessarily selling a product, but creating and spawning outrage and also kind of apathy towards towards voting and towards the system and, and anti and anti-institutional kind of behaviors um, against police, against government, against education. So you can look at it. There's a, there's a few different ways to look at it, but um, as as a kind of a something that exists um, as a conspiracy, which is which is what the indictment is going after, then absolutely. I mean, I think that the the operation was was extremely effective for for you know what they what the purpose of it was. You've highlighted the role of some of these fake accounts on Facebook and Instagram and elsewhere. The Blacktivist one, for instance, they were posing as a black activist group, organizing rallies to confuse people about the real rallies, purveying extreme messages that were designed to uh, be used by the other side uh, to, to say, look how out of touch or look how extreme these activists are. You also wrote a recent report in Medium that I found really interesting, where you looked at the a series of troll accounts and misinformation accounts on Twitter and found that they were actually retweeting a lot of genuine mainstream media. And in fact, they were retweeting a lot of local news in places like Houston and Kansas City and San Francisco. What purpose might that have served? And does that fit in with the uh, with anything in the Mueller indictment? Or is that a separate issue of bots and trolls and misinformation on Twitter? So that's a very good question. From a local perspective, when you look at these local accounts, uh, what they were, what one of the big purposes of them using, um, you know, I, I think that use is a good word, uh, using the local um, media and kind of regional media is is really to um, make themselves legitimate and connect with their audiences. So, and then once that relationship was established with their local audiences, I mean, they they were, you know, they were actually even in some cases retweeting sports, right? So all they were using. Um, kind of local reporting, and this is where McClatchy, you know, got involved maybe with some of with, with posting some of these or including some of these trolls and in, in stories because um, that was an issue a few months ago. But I think that you know, the, for the most part, the local media uh, aspect of this, which is really frightening because it's some of the least you know resilient um, and you know most problematic kind of areas in terms of uh, funding and, and business right now. So, but they were really being used um, to connect on the ground and connect to connect with uh, community organizers and kind of just once, and once that was established, I think that then uh, these accounts would kind of come in and start to troll or, or, or start to try to find wedge points um, and, and divisive. So the, the header that I put on that study was actually a screenshot of a, um, of the Baltimore online account, which was the fake Baltimore news site. And, you know, this, these are the kinds of, so they actually had, uh, they actually had posted a link from WBAL-TV, um, and the text of the tweet says, quote, unquote, Baltimore City seeks to avoid election problems. So anything that was unknown or any kind of reporting on social unrest or p- 
police brutality or or election, you know, hints at election fraud and and kind of election turnout um, would get typically amplified by these by these local accounts. So it was it was a very um, interesting. You know, I think that there's more to be found in this data set as well because this was kind of just really scratching the surface. According to Hamilton 68, which is a dashboard set up by the Alliance for Securing Democracy that monitors some 600 accounts that are affiliated with Russian trolls or or bots uh, of some sort, you know, it seems that they are still uh, tweeting and very active around divisive political issues in America, even after, you know, Twitter appears to have gone through such great lengths to purge these accounts, something like 4,000 troll accounts over you know, close to 4,000, rather, 3,800, close to 50,000 uh, or over 50,000, rather, bots have been purged uh, as a result of Twitter's attempt to clean up some of the uh, IRA uh, Internet Research Agency accounts on the platform. But, you know, they at least, you know, some uh, folks in Russia are still active, uh, you know, trying to sow discord in the U.S. They were actually tweeting about the indictment. Uh, they were tweeting um, about the uh, tragic shooting in Florida. So, you know, either... Twitter hasn't found them all or there's more to do. You know, what's happening right now is clearly a technological arms race. So as 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 kind of algorithms and as services are created to identify these bot-like or automated accounts, you know, often most of them aren't fully automated. They're, you know, a lot of them, a lot of the kind of most influential or or the most troublesome ones are, you know, ran by a human part of the time and automated the rest. So cyborgs they call them. But I think that, you know, every time that there's dashboards created or there's services created to kind of identify points of, of discord that are retweeted and amplified by by any type of bot, including Russian ones, I mean, because the Russians are not the only problem in this at all. So I think that, you know, they'll, this, these things will just be reverse engineered, right? So as, you know, as these bot or not type algorithms and services that you run accounts through um, kind of develop or evolve, like the exact same thing happens with bots. Like they get more sophisticated, all of the signals that it, so it's, it's essentially like SEO for bots, right? They're, it's back and forth as they kind of game one thing, then the service updates, you know, it's detection kind of signals. And then these other accounts will just find another way to kind of, you know, evade the detection systems. So I, in many ways, bots are a problem more for, especially for journalists and for people who are writing and, you know, they're, they're meant to kind of mislead, uh, especially things like trending algorithms and search results, um, which, you know, have effects to real people. But um, in many ways, like you were saying, when they're kind of tweeting about things, you know, as they happen, they're like live tweeting the indictment. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like a pollution, right? It's like an information pollution where, you know, it's, there's like smog and you can't see very, I mean, I think that there's, there's almost an effort where, they're not necessarily even trying to convince people, but it's more um, an illusion of, you know, it's like a pollution, you know, meeting that meets illusion with like a consensus or that people actually do have an opinion that is, you know, not in line with kind of the results of something or the results of an election or the results. So it's, there, it's really an effort to sow discord and, and really it's kind of anti-consensus in a way. So no one can agree on anything, which is a huge problem right now. 
One quick final question for you. You've argued that we can't move towards solutions too quickly because we still don't fully understand what happened in 2016. So how are we going to make sure that we're not making the problem worse if we try to fix it? On the other hand, it is clear, as you've both touched on, that already the efforts are underway to interfere with the 28 midterm elections. What are you most worried about if we do move too quickly? And and are you sure that that's worse than not doing anything at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that so the the study that I finally um, was able to put out on on Twitter data, um, I, you know, I think that there's been a huge, uh, again, there's been a lot of attention to Twitter, and there's been a lot of attention to you know what I would call kind of hyper partisan right wing or fringe right uh, fake quote unquote fake news sites. So, but I think that an equally large problem in this, and and I just see patterns over and over again, is there's a whole other side to this that falls into uh, things like black life, like fake Black Lives Matter, and urban targeting and uh, urban youth, and kind of. So I think that you know when I was able to finally go through the some of the data, uh, which was actually not even officially released by Twitter, it was NBC's data. I finally got you know some insight into well, you know this isn't just Breitbart, right? This isn't just um, these aren't just hy- hyper partisan news sites. The fact that I was able to kind of quantify with actual. I guess the best word for it is troll data is is really important because when you start kind of going after one segment of this, there's a whole other side that could kind of get left out or or get or not receive the kind of funding attention that it would need to to help prevent this in the future. So if you if you're just chasing the kind of far right, then I think that that there's you're missing part of the the equation. So but we have to have data to understand this because we can't you know we we can't really make assumptions about things. Um, we have to get the data and we have to get more data from platforms to be able to to really understand this. Otherwise, we could be heading the right direction or, or we could be, you know, in, in fact, worsening or amplifying uh, some of the exploits, the cultural exploits, I call them, uh, that might have happened. Maybe one thing we can all agree on is that it would be great for the platforms like Facebook and Twitter to turn over their data to make it public so that researchers like you can help us do the work of making sense of it. Dr. Jonathan Albright, thanks so much for joining us on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. One last break and then don't close my tabs. Some of our favorites online this week. bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, what tab couldn't you close this week? So this has nothing to do with the Mueller indictment. Oh, no, that's all I know. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> My tab this week is a news story about a little tweak that Google made to how its search engine works. So when you search, you can click that images tab and you're just searching images for the keyword that you typed in. In the past, when you clicked on any of those images, you had an option called view image. And that would take you to a web page that just showed the image that was really convenient if you wanted to then copy or save the image to your hard drive and repurpose it for something else. In other words, it was really good if you wanted to pirate the image. Google decided last week to take away that feature. So now there is no view image button anymore from your image search results. And if you want to steal an image, you're going to have to find a little bit of a more roundabout way to do it. April, I'm curious, did you see this change? And and did you have any thoughts on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing? I didn't see this. No, I've really been so head down in the indictment and and the social media companies involved with it. I I didn't see what else was going on with them. (laughs) All right. So I'm interested because I feel like smart people can disagree on whether this is a good idea. And it sort of goes to what the point of a search engine like Google is. Is Is the goal just to make things as easy as possible on the end user? In which case you leave that view image tab because a lot of people obviously use it. It's really convenient if you're just trying to get straight to the image. Or does Google, is Google willing to make things a little bit harder on users in the goal of trying to support uh, content producers or the people who may have created that image or have the copyright on that image? This is obviously one of the eternal questions of the internet. I just thought it was a funny little way that that played out last week. So this is really interesting because what it's essentially doing is taking people off of Google.com, right? And that is a little counterintuitive to a lot of the things that Google has been doing, like taking uh, the top lines of Wikipedia onto the search page so people don't actually leave Google and just kind of read the quick summary that they wanted to read on, uh, you know, from Wikipedia on Google or, you know, Google making their um, knowledge or information boxes to the right hand side more robust. Again, the end result of that is keeping people on Google. Or even, you know, in the case of uh, uh, local businesses taking information from those local businesses' websites or or occasionally Yelp, um, allegedly, and bringing that into Google as opposed to people leaving Google.com. And so this is definitely a digression from that trend of trying to keep people as engulfed in the platform as possible. So definitely an interesting move. um, And we'll see how it plays out and if their their goals kind of um, actually you know, amount to, uh, to to what happens in practice. All right, April, what was your tab this week? So uh, my tab is is kind of from last week, but it's really one of the best things I've read in a while. It's uh, from Vulture. It's called The Story of Combat Jack, Hip Hop's Flagship Podcaster by Paul Cantor, a really incredible piece about Combat Jack or uh, Reggie O.C. I might be mispronouncing his last name, um, who has passed. He uh, was one of the uh, first people to have a podcast uh, about hip hop and was really a pioneer in podcasting. I really don't have much to add other than I cannot recommend people read this piece enough. It was one of the most moving kind of 
histories of uh, a person's, uh, you know, really important life and, and how a person can, you know, spend their life cultivating, caring for and, and educating people about the arts, you know, and and how that kind of came through this, you know, digital genre of podcasting that that we're doing now and, and, and how his pioneering, you know, work kind of led the way to uh, to so many people to to, to find you know, the music that he would share on there, as well as finding the genre of podcasting. Um, I just really can't recommend it enough. And if you have the time and you want to read a beautiful moving essay about a slice of history that we should all know more about, um, I do recommend this Paul Cantor piece in Vulture. All right, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus, and April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Jonathan Albright. You can find him on Twitter at D1GI. And if you like this show, help us spread the word. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a comment and review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks so much. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. I like that we're switching it up this week. Thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. We'll see you next week. Bye.